0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with managing editor of WGBH, Laura Colarusso, about women in politics in Massachusetts. When we think about politics in Massachusetts, specifically women in politics in Massachusetts, we have a tendency to think about some of the bigger names. It's like the election of Ayanna Presley. She won her seat running against a 10-term incumbent. Or, of course, Elizabeth Warren, who is probably the most visible woman out of Massachusetts, and she also happens to be running for president. And although Massachusetts is a progressive state, women still lag pretty far behind in representation in comparison to other progressive states. And that's where today's guest comes in. Laura Colarusso, Senior Editor at WGBH. She joins me to talk about a recent project for WGBH where she's uncovered some of the reasons behind why Massachusetts lags behind when it comes to electing women. So here is Laura Colarusso going through some of those numbers uncovered by her research. So what's the percentage of legislators that are women in Massachusetts? Sure.
1: So we're around 28.5% here in Massachusetts. And uh, that number had actually in the early 2000s hovered around 25%. And one of the things that originally got me interested in this story was I was watching the 2018 elections, and there was this narrative that it was the year of the woman. Um, but really, um, if you look at the percentages, specifically at the state house, like we're talking about right now, really only ticked up by about three and a half percent. And that got me kind of curious about, well, if this is the year of the woman, why is the gain so incremental? That 28.5% of female representation at the Massachusetts state house level puts us in 27th place across the countries, And so, as you mentioned, we're far behind our uh, other New England states. Um, it's not just Vermont. All the other New England states rank above us. Vermont just happens to be the highest with 40%. And then there's Nevada with 50.8% roughly. So, really, there is... Uh, I think, a lag here in Massachusetts that was worth being investigated.
0: Yeah. You know, the interesting thing, I was thinking about those two states, Nevada and Vermont, and then thinking about Massachusetts, and they're all pretty progressive, I think, generally. And I was just wondering what the difference was there, if we could pinpoint what they're doing differently to elect more women.
1: Well, I think I'd like to answer that question in the reverse, because I think there are some special challenges in Massachusetts, one of the biggest ones being actually the cost of childcare, And this was something that kind of unfolded as I reported out the story. But Massachusetts, by several measures, has the most expensive child care. In the country. I mean, uh, depending on whether or not you're looking for at-home care or center-based care, I mean, it tends to cost thousands of dollars more here, which is an impediment to women running for office. Women still tend to be the primary caregivers. And if you can't uh, get, use campaign funds to cover that cost, I think there are a lot of people who make the calculation, well, I just can't financially afford it. I think that's one big thing. Massachusetts is also has this reputation. The title of the story is the original Old Boys Club. there are just some very firmly entrenched political networks here that have been around for generations. And so I think, you know, women have traditionally waited their turn to run, they've waited for positions to open, people to retire and have open seats to run for. And um, as those come open, you know there's there have been more and more women running lately, but that's a new phenomenon. So I think you know incumbency is an issue everywhere, but in Massachusetts it's people point to that here as something sort of special because of just how old the state is and how firmly entrenched some of these political networks are.
0: Yeah, so incumbency is a really interesting one. and I want to talk about that later. but I also want to talk about the fact that in the piece you point out the fact that Massachusetts is a progressive state. And mm-hmm. when I was thinking about that, I think that you know often when we're analyzing these things, and, and we were talking about representation, I think that we probably, and you can tell me if I'm right about this or not, put too much emphasis on how progressive a coalition or how progressive a state or an area is. Because when you think about all of the things that hold women back from holding office, it you know it's, it's really not very partisan, right? There was a poll that came out from Emerson, an Emerson poll, I think it was just last week. They were interviewing Sanders voters or Sanders supporters. And, and you're probably familiar with this. of, of his voters or his supporters said that if he did not get the nomination, that they would rather vote for Trump than Elizabeth Warren, which is really interesting because, you know, assuming that they support Sanders, they're politically aligned with progressive politics, right? And Elizabeth Warren is, you know, her policies align very closely to Sanders. So it seems like there's some sexism or some of the behaviors from the good old boys club that kind of supersede what a person's politics is. So I guess my point is, is that do you think that focusing on whether a state is progressive or not is kind of a red herring in terms of determining how much representation a state has among women? Okay, I think your point is well taken in that a lot of the
1: same obstacles are there, whether you're living in Alabama, California, New York, Massachusetts, Idaho, Wherever it's expensive to run, it's expensive to have childcare everywhere. But I think the question about Massachusetts being progressive, I think, is interesting because, um, and this is my own hypothesis, but I got this sense that women were just starting to really kind of awaken here in Massachusetts as wanting to run more, because um, you know, for a long time, even we have a long history of Republican governors, but fundamentally speaking, women's rights haven't been, you can kind of take them for granted here. But I I think in a state like Massachusetts, which is progressive, in some ways kind of almost works a little bit against women running for office because I don't think that there's this perceived need like there might be in other states. Like when you have the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, saying that he will fund Planned Parenthood even if the Republicans in Washington take that funding away, that federal funding away, I, I don't see that they're like women's hair isn't on fire here because we're going to lose our reproductive rights. And so it might be a little counterintuitive, but when you have a state that's progressive and your rights aren't being questioned, it might make you feel a little less nervous and a little less like you need to get involved to keep protecting them.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I didn't actually think about that. I guess I was thinking about the the ideas and the behaviors and the attitudes towards women. Seeking more power, you know they're not really politically aligned with one group or the other. So the assumption that you know a state is progressive or a group is progressive, assuming that that means that they'll be more pro-woman isn't a good assumption, right? But I see your perspective, because it is a progressive state, you know, people aren't really focused on this idea that we need greater representation. You know, I'm in in Washington state, which is also a very progressive state. And I can see some of the same things being mirrored here, right? You know, the assumption that this piece of (laughs) building a progressive or a diverse coalition is already taken care of because we are a progressive state. So,
1: yeah. Right. And but I, to your point, I I think that there is something to that where, you know, Evelyn Murphy, the first female to hold statewide office in Massachusetts, talks about how on the campaign trail women would come up to her and say, "I like you, you're smart enough, but are you tough enough?" And I think that there is I think there's sort of an inherent bias because women can sometimes be tougher on women, but even today in 2018, in the last election cycle, women were being asked questions like, are you tough enough? Can you handle the office? What does your husband think? And that comes from both sides of the aisle. And I think that there's just something psychological that lies underneath a woman seeking higher office or trying to promote herself that is difficult for people on both sides of the aisle.
0: Yeah, you know, I I know that that's often a gendered question, but you know, I'm guilty of wondering that myself and not just with women candidates. Given what candidates are up against with this administration, I think everybody's being asked that question,
1: right? A lot of this question centers around how the media covers candidates. I mean, if you look at somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who you brought up, who has just proposed policy after policy after policy, a lot of the discussion around her is not about those policies, but is she likable enough, right? Whereas some of her male competitors haven't really put forth many policies, but are considered charming and somebody you'd want to have a beer with and have really raised in the polls, their standings have raised in the polls on the strength of being likable, right? Um, Even though they haven't put forth many policy proposals. So, I think that there is, um, you know, I think there's sort of an inherent bias against women as they seek higher office. I mean, we saw that with Hillary Clinton, her favorability ratings would go up when she was actually doing the job of Secretary of State. And as soon as she decided she was going to run for office, they plummeted because I think there is, it's, difficult for our society to kind of watch women want to be ambitious
0: yeah so let's talk about elizabeth warren massachusetts have sent some really progressive you know high profile women right to washington you've got elizabeth warren who obviously she's probably the most high profile and then you know next in line is ayanna presley right and we talked about incumbency and one of the things that always impressed me about presley's run was that she unseated i think what a tenure incumbent or a 10 term -term incumbent ten term -term incumbent which is insane (laughs) I mean, so that's that's quite a feat. Right. And she's the first African-American woman to to represent Massachusetts at that level, I think. Right. That's correct. So incumbency is a really tricky thing, because what I didn't think about until I read your piece was the fact that if you wanted greater representation of women in, at any level of government, you typically have to unseat someone. Right. I mean, or you have to wait for someone to retire or wait for something else to happen. But, you know, that's kind of a tricky question. So can you talk about that being one of the barriers for getting more women in government in Massachusetts?
1: Sure. Um, and I'd be happy to talk a bit more about Iona Presley because I think there's a very interesting twist to her campaign in this regard. But- Broadly speaking, and there's a great quote in the piece from the Massachusetts uh, Women's Political Caucus, where they talk about how when they go out to endorse or support women who are running against incumbents, they get a lot of pushback here. And they get a lot of people telling them, you shouldn't do it. It's not time. These women should wait their turn, which is, I think, something that really inhibits a lot of the change that activists want to see. Um, Because these activists will all say that they want to get to about 50 percent representation for women, right? They want parity. So I think that's the hurdle, right? Like people just feel like they should have to wait. You have to wait till a seat comes open. And if you look at Mike Capuano, he was there for 10 terms, right? And he's probably going to be there for however many more. But I mean, it wasn't going to be just a few years, probably until he decided it was time to retire. So the thing that I found really interesting about Ayanna Presley was, I mean, she she took him on, but what her campaign really did was found new voters, um, which doesn't happen a whole lot right and so instead of trying to go after everybody that would vote for my capuano she really worked hard to connect with people who had been kind of left out or had felt like they had been left out and that there wasn't a great reason to vote and that she connected with them. And that's how she beat him. Um, And so I think she's a great model for people who want to say that, you know, you don't have to wait your turn. And I think that she had the right message at a moment when people felt like they needed real change. You know, it was after the 2016 election. A lot of people that I talked to for this piece talked about how the 2016 election was a real wake-up call for them. And they realized that they needed to get more involved and whether that was at the national level going on marches or whether that was just even in their town like there, there are these small networks happening all over Massachusetts now, just people in their living rooms talking about how can we diversify our local town governments. There was this one that I found called the Winchester Inclusive, where the day after the 2016 election, about 40 friends and neighbors got together and they commiserated, but then also figured that their next step was to to get more women and minorities working in their town government. There's a whole range of really interesting things happening right now.
0: Yeah. Was that the twist, the fact that she broadened the coalition or is there an even bigger twist? I think that was the big twist. But then also
1: she used social media in a way that I thought I think was particularly effective. She was running these great Facebook ads that were well targeted and Capuano didn't really do that at all. Um, And so she was able to reach people kind of in a new way. And that's, I think, which kind of helped propel her forward.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm still kind of on the fence about that. So I, I love Ayanna Presley. I'm glad she won. I think she's going to do great things. She's, you know, really, really strong. She was a really strong candidate. And, you know, but I'm on the fence because I don't know if you know about there was a recent change by the mm-hmm. DCCC, I guess, in an attempt to discourage unseating incumbents. Well, I think what they said was
1: they were going to not work with vendors that worked with new candidates challenging incumbents, right? So if you're a polling firm that was going to help a candidate challenging an incumbent, that the DCCC wouldn't work with you.
0: Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really, really torn on this precisely for the reasons we just discussed. And, you know, a lot of people came out against that decision by the Triple C. But, you know, frankly, if Ayanna Presley had not challenged an incumbent in Massachusetts for that seat, the House would be less diverse than it is now. So the DCCC decision in many ways, it can hinder the goal of reaching parity, you know, gender parity, racial parity. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm glad she won that seat. But I also don't want to lose any safe seats in the House. Well, unless there's a large wave of male
1: congressmen and senators retiring in the next few years, uh, there's no way to keep moving forward towards parity unless female candidates challenge incumbents. So I see this this move by the DCCC is sort of at odds with factions of the party that really want to diversify our elected officials more.
0: Yeah. And it's a really tough, tough juncture to be at, because we're at this juncture where we just generally are, you know, are across the nation, we want greater representation for women specifically and for all groups, right? <laughs> you know, and also, you know, we're kind of in this position where we just want to win as many races as possible. And like you point out in your piece, being an incumbent has many, many advantages, right? You know, fundraising, you have an existing network, and all of these things that kind of support the idea that incumbents are are. Safer bets. Right? Right. Well, that was the that was the argument that Capuano
1: tried to make that he didn't make very well, which is basically that, you know, you already have somebody in Congress. I have seniority, and here are the the committees I will be on and how I will be able to help Massachusetts. And it that didn't resonate with voters, right? I think that there's Enough frustration with the way things work in Washington—the gridlock, the lack of, you know, moving forward in any meaningful way on a variety of issues—that you know, I don't think people care so much anymore about seniority. I think they want to see people with bold ideas um, about fixing real problems that confront them on a daily basis.
0: Right, but is that attitude a part of the old boys' club mentality that you talk about in the piece? Right. Yeah, I, I think that it is because um, it's
1: based on a hierarchical structure of here's who holds the power. And for women to make more inroads, that power structure needs to be jumbled up a bit. I mean, I don't think anybody's trying to say that women should hold all the seats, but I think that if you're going to get to the 50% mark, which is where most activists say they want to be in terms of female representation, like, there are going to be some white men who have to lose their jobs.
0: Yeah. So, so one of the the things that you point out in the piece is that in Massachusetts, and this is probably true across the nation, that. You know, the number of women on a school board is actually higher. It's closer to parity. I think it's something like 51%. And so that's kind of an anomaly in this larger picture. So can you talk about why there's a higher percentage of women on the school board there?
1: Sure. I do find this to be a really interesting juxtaposition because it's, the, the number's right around 50%. It's like just 50% female versus male representation on local school boards. And I think Part of the reason why women tend to feel more comfortable to run for those spots is because there's just a longer history of women being involved in their children's schools. That's what our reporting bore out. I mean, the experts that we talked to said you just women are interacting with schools more frequently than their male counterparts. And so they're more comfortable with the material. They're advocating for their children. They're advocating for their communities. And it just seems like a much more natural fit, which, you know, I feel almost like retro in saying that, but that's the reason that the experts give. Um, And you kind of see that, like, it takes women being asked roughly seven times, I think, to run for something like the city council or or to run for state rep or whatever. But the school board seems to be a much more natural fit by virtue of the fact that women are caregivers and so therefore have a natural connection to schools through their children.
0: Yeah. And there's probably a lot less resistance to run for the school board, you know, with people seeking, men seeking those seats. I mean, it's just like, that's the realm of women, you know, schools. I think
1: that's fair. And I think that Um, there are a couple of other things at play here. One, school boards can be bigger. And so there are more seats to begin with. But then also one question that I have that we weren't able to get at through the data was, I'd be very interested to look at school boards um, in urban areas versus school boards in more rural areas. Because my my hunch is, and this is not borne out by any reporting that we've done, but it'd be very interesting to see if in urban areas where the school boards are sort of you know, um, they're higher profile, they carry more cachet, like they're, you're dealing with, in some cases, billion dollar budgets. If in urban areas, the school boards tend to be more male versus female. I, I don't, this is just a hunch on my part, but I'd be kind of curious to see this might be a follow up that we do to kind of get a better lay of the land geographically to see how the gender makeup of school boards look across the state.
0: Right. That makes sense. Actually, that would be really interesting because I guess in more urban areas, like let's say D.C., for instance, right? You know, a lot of politicians probably have their school, their children in certain districts. And so there's, you know, there are advantages to, to having connections to the school board, possibly. I don't right. know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And I, you know, I should have, before I said that, looked up what the Boston Public Schools Board is. It might actually be fairly close to parity, but I'm really curious about whether or not school boards with bigger budgets have more men on them. Interesting. I could be totally wrong. That's,
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to look that up too. After. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things that you point out in the piece is that there are, you know, women having positions on certain boards could give them a lot of power, like power over a city's budget or power over, you know, certain other things. You know, and I think we see this across all industries. You know, not just in government, we see this in technology and you know other industries. When a person has a position of power where they can hire more people or they have control over a budget, you, you they hire people who are kind of in their network and that they're comfortable with, and the more more Mm -hmm. men you have means that they're going to hire more white men, right? And so, that's another disadvantage.
1: Actually, one of the female select board members that I interviewed for the piece raised this very point. I mean, she asked to be anonymous in the piece because she didn't want to, she was for fear of reprisal. So, we allowed her to remain anonymous in the piece, but that was exactly what she said, that, you know, without her being on the board, she's a single female on her board, there would only be the four other people on her board are white men. So, and they reach out to their networks to find people to hire and to bring in for, you know, boards that would be, they would appoint people to. And so, that just perpetuates the thing we were talking about earlier with incumbency, when the same group of people is constantly putting their friends into powers of position or their acquaintances into powers of position, you tend to nominate and bring in people who are like you. So, that is another way that the Old Boys Club, the Old Boys Network, perpetuates itself in Massachusetts. I think that that is a very powerful and probably less discussed portion of what I uncovered in my reporting, and that just doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but when you have a structure of the same people being elected or appointed, it just perpetuates itself.
0: You know, and it it also aligns with a lot of research that I've read about when women are in office, the things that they focus on tend to be more social and civil rights issues and also reproductive health issues. But they also don't do that at the expense of other issues like economic issues. So the thing is, is that, you know, obviously, which is why we're talking about this, when you have more women represented, you know, the state and local level, they will focus on social and civil rights issues, obviously. So the legislation will move in a direction where the the state will become more progressive, right? Because those are the issues that women often focus on.
1: Well, one thing that's kind of interesting to bring out is if you look at the number of women elected, we have two main parties in this country where there are, you know, we've got the Democrats and the Republicans, and the majority of the gains in terms of female representation happened on the Democratic side, right? And in fact, to the detriment of Republican women, where you had a number of Republican women taken out by Democratic women, right? And so there are fewer women to reach across the aisle to try to create compromise, because I think what part of what was inherent in your question is, can women get things done? And there's a sense uh, from people I've talked to, and the reporting sort of bore this out, that, you know, women come together from across the aisle to try to create solutions. Um, I was given multiple examples of how women reached across the aisle in small groups to create a bigger compromise that then Congress could come together on. And I think there are people who are worried that the Republicans seem to be becoming more male, right? I mean, there are fewer Republican women in Congress now.
0: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: What does that mean for um, not just female representation, but sort of like how the House and Senate take up legislation or try to solve problems going forward.
0: Yeah, you know, I guess my point is that when progressive men hold office and when we don't have gender parity, you may not get the same intense focus on strengthening something like reproductive rights, for instance, right, Or, or a focus on, you know, gender pay equity. And, you know, and the impact of shoring up those policies, you know, it has a greater Impact on the entire community, you know, not just for women. It, like, these aren't just women's issues.
1: One of the conversations that is sort of seared into my brain um, was I, I was with uh, Representative Trom Nguyen. She's a state rep here in Massachusetts. She just unseated a guy by the name of Jim Lyons, who's a pretty conservative Republican, and she took her earlier this year in 2019. So she's like a brand new minted state rep here for us. And one of the things I will never forget that she said to me, and it's in the piece, is that, you know, yes, is Massachusetts progressive? Sure. Does it mean we have work to do still? Yes, definitely. Because, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening at the federal level that at Massachusetts, like we think of ourselves as progressive, but we still need to make sure that we stand up for reproductive rights. We need to make sure that, um, you know, we we have access to healthcare, and that the state is making sure that whatever happens at the federal level, we're protected here in Massachusetts. And it was kind of a powerful thing that she said, because I don't think most people make the connection between what happens at the statehouse with what happens in Washington, D.C., or even at the local level. Her point was that up until a few months ago or maybe a year ago, there were still laws on the books that made abortion illegal here in Massachusetts. And we changed that because our legislators looked at what was happening in Washington, D.C. and said, okay, We need to be prepared if the Supreme Court does knock down Roe v. Wade. But I think that she was looking at it from the perspective that even though that's good, we still need to be better. Like we have to be vigilant. We can't just hope that everything's going to be okay because you just you never know what's around the corner.
0: So I want to talk a bit about Elizabeth Warren, specifically around you know how she rose to be this very public figure from Massachusetts, you know, given that she came from the same environment, the same environment that kind of perpetuates, you know, this good old boys at work, right? So what did she do differently? What was different about her campaign? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, she defeated Scott Brown, who
1: replaced Ted Kennedy in the Senate, right? And Scott Brown was the guy that made health care more difficult to achieve, for the Democrats, but it was sort of this moment where she kind of proved, I guess, that Scott Brown was an aberration and not going to be the new rule going forward. She created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I think she had a really high profile because of how much the Republicans uh, fought against her taking over that organization. I don't know if you remember Uh, the fight over whether or not she would actually lead the organization she designed and brought to fruition. But I think she became a national figure then because she just became somebody the right really targeted. And I think she came back to Massachusetts with a lot of political credibility and capital, right? And she parlayed that into a pretty successful run. And she did it very convincingly. I mean, she is the first female senator to represent Massachusetts, um, which when you think about it is amazing because she was elected in 2012.
0: Yeah. You know, I think we forget about our history because she is so high profile. She is such a such a powerhouse. Right. Mm-hmm. We forget that she's been there for like six years. Right. I exactly. mean, you know, it feels like she's been there forever because she's you know, she's such a strong, powerful woman in Washington.
1: I actually had to double check to make sure I was right about her being elected first in 2012, because I think you're right. It does seem like she's been around for longer. I think part of that is all the work she did for the Obama administration. But I mean, she's just, if you look at her presidential run now, she's somebody who is just churning out policy after policy and has answers for um, whether you agree with her answers or not, but she can really articulate what she thinks is important and why she would work on it the way that she would. And I I think that's something that not a lot of other candidates have. I mean, she's ve- she's got very specific policy. And I think that that's, you know,
0: adding to the debate. Right. Now, I think that's really admirable. I mean, people are talking about the fact she's training out policy after policy, and she understands that you don't need to just simply understand the problem. You also need to be able to articulate it clearly from every intersectional perspective. Right. And you also need to be able to come up with ideas to address it. Right. Right. And to come up with, I think I was listening to some interview with her. Oh, it was her town hall, her CNN town hall. And she didn't wait to be asked how she would pay for something. She just just proactively offered it. <laughs> you know that's that's Elizabeth Warren. She's she's amazing,
1: right? Well, I think she's thought through like the second, third order effects of what she's proposing, and you know she's she's ready to answer those questions. I mean, she was a law professor, and so. You know, in those classrooms, you, when you're asked a question, you better be ready to defend yourself, right? And I'm sure she's used to doing that.
0: So, you know, that leads me to my my next question. One of the things that you point out in the piece is that when women run, I, I think you probably gleaned this from the women you were interviewing for the piece. There's this confidence gap mm-hmm. in, in how men and women view their qualifications for elected office. What does that mean? And what does that look like in practice? Sure. So
1: um, one of the things I found really interesting about this is it's almost the same thing about women asking for raises or going after. A, a new position where, like, women feel like they have to have 100% of the qualifications checked off, all those boxes checked off before they'll apply. Um, whereas men often feel don't like I think the statistic is around they need about. To feel like they've got 60% of those boxes checked off. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to running for office. There was an interesting poll done by Politico and a couple of universities a year or so ago where they looked at how women progress from high school to college and beyond. And, you know, something happens in those college years where women become less confident in their ability to run and men become more confident. And I think part of that is men discuss it more and like they have mentors that discuss it more with them and women tend to not have that experience. And so, you see at the collegiate level, this divergence of women feeling like they have the qualifications. And it was just really the confidence to go forward with it. Whereas men, you know, their confidence grows.
0: You know, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there is a new org called Supermajority, right? Which was, I think, just announced last week or a couple of weeks ago. And it was co-founded by Cecile Richards, you know, formerly of Planned Parenthood and Alicia Garza. She was the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And I think also Ajin Poo, who's also an activist, right? So Supermajority was founded with the goal of mobilizing women to become activists and organizers for specifically for 2020. You know, and I think their goal was something like they wanted to mobilize 2 million women for 2020, which is an amazing number. And I think it's this kind of organizing that that's crucial to to success in 2020 and, you know, beyond 2020. If we want to see gains in relation to, you know, some of these progressive policies, you know, for future generations, you know, like on climate change or like on, you know, healthcare and, of course, reproductive rights. If we want to see policies that stick, especially in relation to some of the things that are supported by Warren and Ayanna Presley, we really can't be short-sighted. You know, we really can't just tackle one election at a time. You really need to plan long-term. Well, I think that goes back to infrastructure, because one of the questions
1: that I had following the Women's March and the subsequent Women's Marches is, is, okay, we've got all of this passion and excitement to move women's issues forward, and really not just women's issues, but to to sort of take a different path in our politics following the election Donald, of Donald Trump. But is there the infrastructure to support that going forward? And I think that group, Supermajority, is an example of some of the infrastructure that's forming now to keep that momentum going. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but there are a bunch of like little kitchen counter, kitchen cabinet groups forming in towns here in Massachusetts where Their goal is to promote candidates that are diverse. There are groups forming to try to keep the foot on the gas, right? So that way, when 2020 rolls around, we don't see all of this momentum fizzle out like we did like in 1992. That was the year of the woman too, right? I think we elected four women, four new women to the Senate to bring us to a total of six. And then like the enthusiasm kind of fizzled out because there wasn't the infrastructure there. 2020 will be very interesting um, to see what women are able to accomplish in terms of keeping that momentum going
0: i think we do have a tendency to kind of fizzle out you know and i don't want a year of the woman right, right. We, when we when we dub things the year of a woman that's how we end up in 2019 or 2020 with you know 20 of representation right a lot of the change that you're
1: seeing is generational so, like younger women, more diverse women are willing to take on incumbents, right? And that's like what you see in Ayanna Pressley. Younger women are stepping up to say, "Okay, I don't have the same baggage of challenging an incumbent that women from older generations do." And so, a lot of the a lot of the change that you're seeing is because of the younger a younger generation of women. I think that that is falling somewhat, not completely, but somewhat along generational lines.
0: Yeah, but then I think of examples like Lucy McBath, right? So I guess my reaction is that I want women generally to be mobilized mm-hmm. and not necessarily just younger women. And there are some examples of women and, you know, I don't want to call anyone's age, right. but there's some examples of women who who are just moved and who are passionate, who may be familiar with that kind of old boys mentality that may have gotten Trump elected mm-hmm. and who feel moved to run for office, too. So you can see it in two ways, right, like sure. younger women and then also women who were kind of fighting back against some things that may have held them back earlier in their careers. Mm -hmm. Well, Laura Calarissa, thank you so much for joining me. I think this piece is really important. I think that we should continue to think about how to get greater representation for women at, at all levels of government. So I'm really glad that you wrote this piece. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Links to all of the information mentioned in the episode can be found in the episode's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Let me know your thoughts by leaving a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Reviews are immensely helpful at a podcast gaining visibility. Also, if this is your first time listening to The Electorate, please take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, The Electorate is on social media. You can find The Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.